So if, if you haven't been with us in 2023, what we've been doing is we've been slowly work, working through the book of Matthew. Uh, we've been, we, we, we're taking it from beginning to end, and we'll go through the entire thing. Um, and we've been breaking them into little mini-series. So this is the last week in our Authority and Power series. Uh, it's been a difficult series, if we're honest, because it's the series in which Jesus continually and regularly challenges the religious establishment. It opened with him riding into the city, uh, contrasted to Pilate, who ran in, who would go, went into Jerusalem during the time of Passover with an army and armor, uh, in his grand show where Jesus rides in on a donkey. Uh, we, we saw him then go to the temple and turn the tables inside the temple. We saw him then be challenged by the Pharisees. We, we've, seen, we've seen him push back on all of these spaces, and we're actually going to wrap up that part of the series today. Uh, but before we do that, I actually want to give you a little preview of what comes next. Um, so as we've been working through Matthew, there have been a number of passages that we have skipped over, and we, one of the things we promised not to do was not skip the hard stuff. And some of you might have been wondering, why have we consistently skipped the passages on heaven and hell? Um, we've done that because we wanted to take them all in one go, which is actually our next series. So we'll, for the next series, we're going to spend three weeks talking about heaven, we're talking about hell, and we're going to talk about the rapture too, or the end times kind of things in those ways. Now, just the reason I want to bring it up today is we recognize that those topics have a lot of different ideas on how they work. Uh, if you remember back in the Mars Hill era when Rob Bell wrote the book Love Wins and people lost their minds, right, we realized that people have some really uh, strong feelings about those things. So what we're going to do is we are going to teach on those. We don't want to shy away from it. But we're also going to, uh, uh, on each Sunday night, uh, do something that some of our other campuses have done from time to time, and they call it the cutting room floor. Uh, so we want to have an extended conversation on those spaces, an extended dialogue on first week heaven, then hell, then the end time stuff, uh, on Sunday nights starting next week. So um, if, you are, if that's something you're interested in, something you want to have a conversation about, we'll come back here. Uh, it'll be the same time as youth group if youth group's going on, um, and, uh, and we'll have an extended conversation on that. I'm excited about it. There's a ton of stuff to talk about. Um, there's a lot of places we can go, so I want to invite you back into that space. Um, I think it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, and we want to have a lot of grace for each other, recognizing that there's a lot of different ways to look at it. This week, though, like I said, we're going to be closing up the series that we're in on authority and power. We've seen Jesus work through all of these spaces, and uh, we do have a baptism later, and sometimes it's hard when you have a I wish we could go all happy and, and uplifting, which we hopefully will get to at the end. And the passage that we made it to right now in Matthew is when Jesus delivers a series of woes. So those don't seem to match all that well, but we'll see, we'll see what we can do with it. Uh, Jesus has been challenged a number of times by the teachers of the law and the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They, uh, he's challenged them, essentially saying, you're here to bless the people of the world, and you're not doing that. When we, when we saw him in the temple, so the temple was built so that people can encounter God, and instead you've taken the marginalized people and actually started to exploit them. That's where Jesus' rage came in there. Rather than the Pharisees responding by correcting something, they double down and begin to challenge him, coming to a head in this interaction. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to read the whole passage, which is long and a lot of heavy stuff in there, and then we're going to try to circle back and see if we can understand it a little bit better. So we're in Matthew 23 today, which says this, Matthew 23, 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. 
They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them up and, and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect and in the marketplaces and have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you only have one master, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You, do, you yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and then make the convert twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides. You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but whoever swears by the gold in the temple is bound by its oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing, but whoever swears by the gift on the altar is bound by the oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin but have neglected more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You have practiced the latter without neglecting the, the former. You blind guides, you strain out the gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like a whitewashed tomb, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the, the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we have lived in the days of our ancestors, we would have not taken part with them in the shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of the sin of your ancestors. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue them out of town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, this will all come on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent against you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house, the house left to you is desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Like I said, very uplifting, right? <laughs> There's a reason we don't teach on this passage very often, and it's because it's hard. Uh, it's, it's, not a, it's not a super feel good, is it? But what do we do with it? 
Why is, first of all, why is Jesus so upset? What is he trying to convey here? What's he, what's he actually doing? See, the temptation is to just view the Pharisees as some kind of evil group. But I want to push back on that a little bit today. So we've been in Matthew for a while now, and we've, we've had quite a few interactions with the Pharisees. Uh, Jesus challenges them often, and as uncomfortable as it makes them, we've seen time and time again as we work through Matthew, unfortunately, too often we relate to them. That we can understand where they're coming from. We can understand uh, that we sometimes fall into their sa- the same traps. And I know this is review for some of you, but it's important. The Pharisees, it's easy to just think of them as this ambiguous evil entity, but they're not that. They're the local pastors of their day. The, the people of Israel loved the Pharisees. The Sadducees were the ones they didn't love. They were the ones that were, that were, that were, uh, were partnered with Rome. They felt like they had betrayed their, their people. But the Pharisees were just your local pastors. They would travel all over the place. They would teach people. They would care for people. They functioned a lot like pastors do today. And many people really respected them and loved them. <clears throat> We also know that not all of them struggled in the same way that Jesus is calling out here. We see throughout the scriptures that some of the Pharisees actually were wrestling with what Jesus was saying. They were trying to understand what he was doing. We see it in the case of someone like Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus in the night and says, how do I follow what you're doing? And eventually becomes a follower of Jesus. In the book of Acts, we actually see many groups of Pharisees after the resurrection end up following Jesus as well. So we realize that these guys are wrestling with what he's saying. They're trying to figure out what it means for them. Why does all of that matter for the passage that we're looking at today? I think when we understand that, we can can read the passage we just read in a different tone. When we're we're hearing those words, there's a couple of different ways that we can read it, and that'll change the way that we understand it. What lens we read it through will help us understand, will will affect how we understand Jesus' words and what he's trying to accomplish. Next time you read through that, I want you to ask yourself the question what was Jesus' point here? What was he trying to accomplish? What was he doing? Because, like I said, because how you answer that question will dramatically affect how you interpret it. So, what is Jesus trying to do? Well, there are a couple different options. First, if we view Jesus, as, or if we view God, or Jesus in this case, as, a, as someone who's just filled with rage, an anger machine, who can't wait to cast down judgment on those he sees as wicked, that's our vision of who God is. Then, this, then in this passage, you would see that Jesus is verbally expressing God's rage then, right? It's the, it's the preamble to the lightning bolt. Woe to you, you hypocrites, you children of hell, you, you snakes, how will you escape hell? You're, twice, you're going to turn them people into twice a child of hell as you are. If we view God as this angry, vengeful person, then, th- then we see this then as the preamble for him getting ready to throw a lightning bolt. And there are many people who use that tone when they read this passage. I can respect that. But I want to suggest that perhaps the tone is different here. If you don't read it with God being an, the angry agent of lightning judgment, but instead read it as God as father, who's frustra- as a father who's frustrated by how his beloved people have misunderstood his teachings and his guidance, and as a result, turn what was supposed to bring them and the rest of the world closer to God and closer to the life that he desired for them, 
into something that was accomplishing exactly the opposite. If you read it through that lens, you have a very different idea of what's going on here. Why do I make that argument? Well, we've seen the progression through Matthew. I think this passage in particular jumps into a different space when we've read all of Matthew up until now. Each week, Jesus has been challenging a system that's become corrupt. Each week, he's, he's, he's actually hoping to reform something. Jesus' hope is that people would actually repent, that they would actually come back to God. We remember that the lens that we, we, we began with in Matthew, what, what are the very first words of preaching in Matthew? Hopefully somebody knows, because we've said it every week for almost a year. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is all around you. The lens that we read the book of Matthew through are on those words of preaching. If, you're not, if you haven't been with us, the word repent can carry with it so much baggage because we think of the street corner preacher who says, turn or burn, repent or go to hell. But, we, but what we've seen is that the word repent simply is, is the Hebrew word teshuv, which just means to turn. So what Jesus is saying is that there's kingdom life all around you and you're missing it, and so it's an invitation to turn back towards it. So when Jesus is calling out the religious leaders in this space, that's what he's hoping for, is a turn back towards the kind of life that he desires for them. What we see here, and what we've seen through this section of Matthew, is that Jesus continually refers to the prophets, which helps give us a lens on how to understand this particular passage. Because what was the purpose of the prophets? The prophets of the Old Testament were sent to correct Israel's mistake, to re, just like Jesus does in the New Testament. They were sent to invite them into repentance, to turn from what was wrong, the, from the direction that they were headed, which was leading them down some very nasty paths. And if, uh, it's, it's easy to, to get lost in some of the language of the Old Testament, but when it says that Israel left God to follow other gods, sometimes we just go, oh, that's, what, why is that as big of a deal? Why does that make God so angry? But we realize the other gods that they're following are horrible. The gods of the ancient world are not any kind of, uh, they're, they, they're not any of the, um, the myths that we've created where, where they're just kind of uh, like the, the Greek myths or things like that where they're just kind of folly. They're actually horrible things that demand horrible things. It, child sacrifice was a regular practice in Canaan. Ritual prostitution was a regular practice in Canaan. Those are, those are what Israel is leaving God for that kind of life, and the prophets were sent to turn them back away from that. Israel left, leaves the path of life that God offers, and so God sends people to help bring them back. But what we see in the Old Testament is that Israel doesn't repent, they don't turn. And so what happens? Well, we, well what happens is, is, is justice or judgment or exile in this case. Now, that's a complicated thing that I'd love to grab coffee and talk with you about. But a lot of people's first thought when we say that is then, doesn't, that, doesn't the justice that we're talking about actually just prove that God really is the angry judge? And I can see how that argument is made. But again, it, it depends on the lens you read the Old Testament through. That affects how you see this as well. I would argue that if you use the second lens on the Old Testament, you see the same kind of thing that we see in this passage here. Because what's the purpose of justice, which I understand is a loaded question in our modern space. But it's one that we as Christians should be wrestling with often. 
because it actually has practical implications on our day-to-day life now. If the purpose of justice is to punish only, which would be the first lens, this angry, rage-filled God that wants to make you pay for the things that you've done, you cause pain, so you need to repay that debt by experiencing equal pain. If that's what justice means, you'll make decisions to match that. In our modern world, it's the same way. If that's, if that's what justice is for, that determines how long someone stays in jail or what the conditions of that jail are. Who's welcome in what space? And you could go on and on and on. If justice is to make someone feel the pain that they've inflicted, then we make decisions based on that. But I don't think that's, that, that kind of justice is what we see in the Bible at all. In, the, in Scripture, What we see is that justice is always meant to be restorative. I'm going to let you experience the consequences of your actions, so hopefully you learn and turn back towards the full life that I've got for you. It's actually probably on on display the clearest in the book of Judges. If you've ever read through the book of Judges, you you, you see that it's this cycle of, of Israel calling out to God. He shows up, they fall away from him again, and then they experience the consequences of those actions. So they call out again. And the same thing happens over and over again. If, you ever, if you've ever had a chance to sit down and read the whole thing, what you realize is that, that the, 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 the experiences of their consequences get worse and worse as time goes on. When they fall away from God the first time, and, and right before Judges begins, God actually says that if you don't follow me, there are these very tangible consequences you'll receive. When they fall away the first time, some raiders come and steal some of their stuff. They don't, they're not occupied, they're not conquered, they just have to fight this band of raiders. Next, they end up being taken over. Then they get oppressed. Then finally, by the time you get to Gideon, he's trying to thresh his wheat in a wine press so that they don't take just that. The punishments get, the the punishments or the experiencing the consequences of their actions get more severe as time goes on, each time calling them back towards God so hopefully they learn their lesson. Before I go on, I just want to make sure I haven't lost everybody, right? This is complex stuff, and it requires a bit of chewing. And it, again, if, if, if we want to talk Old Testament stuff or any of the things that we still have questions about, let's have coffee and talk about it. But here's where we are. Jesus, like the prophets, has been calling the religious leaders of his day to repentance. You're doing this wrong. You're, you're, you're taking advantage of people that you shouldn't be. You're leading people down the wrong path, so please correct that. What we've seen is their response. How have they responded? With repentance? With turning? No. Over this past, past month, we've seen they responded by fighting back, by doubling down, by challenging him at every turn, and actually beginning to plot to kill him. Pushing Jesus. So like a frustrated father, Jesus gets upset. He lets them know they're off track. He says to the Pharisees, you're off track just like Israel was in the Old Testament. The difference is, in the Old Testament, Israel left God to go pursue other gods. They, 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 they left worshiping Yahweh, God, to go after Molech or Ishtar. Jesus is saying the Pharisees are off track in a similar way But there's also a dramatic difference as well. The Pharisees are off track, not because they went to go pursue different gods, 
They're off track because, they, they're, because they're pursuing the right God. They are trying to serve Yahweh. That's kind of their thing. Is to, they want, their, their whole thing is to maintain the, law, the, the, the rules of the Old Testament as closely as they possibly can. But Jesus says, sure, you might be pursuing the right God, but you're doing it in the wrong way. And as a result, you've missed him just as badly as Israel does in the Old Testament. Track him? And I would argue that it's breaking Jesus' heart. It's frustrated, I'm sure. But why does a father get frustrated? Because he wants what's best for his children, right? He can see what they're doing is hurting themselves, and so he wants to correct them. Now, I get it. Some of us out there did not have great fathers. And so that metaphor is tough on you. That's, if that's the case, one, I'm sorry for that. And two, hopefully you can, you can see where it would be going if your father had been good in that way. The frustration of a father should be coming from a place of saying, I see you're hurting and I want you to correct it. I would argue that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus uses the word woe, which is a word we don't use often and if we'd started to, it would be kind of weird, right? Like, woe to you, right? So what does the word woe mean? I think it actually supports the argument we're making here. It's an exclamation of, of, of denouncing, Sure, we can gather that from the context as well, but it's also an exclamation of grief. The word woe was used specifically because it both expresses frustration and sadness. Jesus, in this case, is both angry and sad. Why? Well, we, because in the most basic way, they've missed the point. They've missed the point of what the kind of life that God laid out for them in the Torah was supposed to be all about. And that that has to be immensely frustrating to Jesus. We'd already mentioned that they'd missed the point similar to Israel in the Old Testament, but but, but but by not following God in the way that he desires, they're doing even sometimes more damage than Israel did. So to help us understand what that means in a little bit more tangible way, I want to close by just pulling out a couple of the woes on the big list that we, we looked through and look at them through the lens of the whole book of Matthew. Let's start with this one. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door to the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, and you yourself do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. We mentioned it already. Jesus began his preaching career by saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is all around you. So we've had to say a number of times in the book of Matthew, when Jesus makes statements like that one, he's not talking about a place you go when you die. He's not talking about shutting the door to people's eternity. What's he talking about? Well, he's, what he's saying is that the Pharisees, you Pharisees, you pastors, you local leaders, you're the you're religious gatekeepers for most people. In that particular culture especially, that what the pastor said was law. So Jesus is preaching this kingdom kind of life he wants to invite people to. And what are the Pharisees doing? They're rejecting it. So they're not experiencing that kingdom life that he's declaring for themselves. And they're actually working to make sure other people don't either. which can help us understand both the frustration and the sadness that Jesus would be feeling, right? 
He's frustrated at the fact that the people who could do the most good for him in spreading the message of a kingdom life being here are the very people who are stopping it from spreading. He's sad because both groups of those people are missing out on the flourishing kingdom life that he desires for both of them. So what happened? Why were the Pharisees like this? And he says that in Matthew 23, 5. Everything they do is for, done for the people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and most important seat, in the most important seats in the synagogues. <clears throat> Excuse me. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have people call them rabbi. This, this particular section gives us a great insight into what happened. Because this passage is, fa- is fa- fascinating. We understand it a little bit when we start to understand what something like a phylactery is or, why, or, the, or the deal with the tassels. I actually have a picture of both of those things. Carter, if you could throw that up. It's a group of Jewish men uh, praying, uh, and you can see both of the things that Jesus is talking about here in this picture. These little boxes on their heads are phylacteries. Uh, they, what, what, what they contain inside of them is this particular passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts and press them on your children. Talk to them when you sit down at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the doorframe of your houses and your gates. So the phylactery, if you want to go back to that picture again, Carter, is that. So that box is them writing the law on their forehead. Inside of that phylactery it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. That's in that box. What what, that's, the, that's what they would perceive as being the fulfillment of this command here in Deuteronomy. The same is true about the, with the tassels. Numbers 15, 39, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garment with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord. In both of these cases, Putting tassels on your clothing and putting a phylactery on your head are the fulfillments of the commands they've been given in the Old Testament. That same concept is true about the important seats that we saw there as well. We actually see God's, we see throughout the Old Testament that God sets up the priesthood. They're given a special honor among the people, and it's very clear in the Old Testament that they should be treated with honor because, of, because, because their hearts are given in service to God. So what we see in this passage <clears throat> is the same thing that we see in a different... What we see in this passage is that the Pharisees are doing what they believe the Old Testament told them to do. It's the same with another part there. You hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. They were tithing like God asked them to, actually doing it religiously. So what happened? You see, the Pharisees had taken the good things that God created to draw his people closer to himself and twisted them away from God and towards themselves. One of the first things I learned when I started playing golf golf, is that you hit what you're aiming at. In concept, that's not actually how my golf shots go. I have a pretty nasty slice sometimes. But you know, the idea being that you hit what you're aiming at, right? The point is, if you're aiming at the wrong target, you'll rarely ever hit it. And so what we see here, what Jesus is calling out, is that the Pharisees have stopped aiming at God and instead started looking out for themselves or their institution. 
and as a result, miss God entirely, or worse yet, caused others to miss him too. Now, I realize today's message is dense. Honestly, if I lost you, please tell me, and I'll try not to go that dense again in the future. Um, But if there's one thing that I'd want you to take away from this lesson, it'd be this. It's the fact that the devil has created nothing, absolutely nothing. Everything that exists was created by God and was created good. The only thing the devil can do is take good things that God created and twist them away from from the good things they were meant to be. C.S. Lewis says it this way, Badness cannot succeed even in being bad in the same way which goodness is good. Goodness is, so to speak itself, badness, only spoiled goodness. Evil is a parasite, not an original thing. Everything that was created was created good to point us towards God or towards a deeper love for each other. What the devil does is take those good things and twist them away from that. Which is what we see in this passage. Our takeaway from this passage, from this difficult section of scripture that we've spent the last month in, is that we need to be constantly evaluating the things we're doing and the motives in which we're doing them. Because we so often fall into the exact same trap as the Pharisees. We allow things that we started doing for good reasons to be twisted into something very different than they were intended to be. What Jesus is doing throughout his ministry on earth is working to untwist the things that we've twisted up. He says it himself, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I haven't come to change the good things that, were, that God gave you back in the Old Testament. I've come to untwist the things that you've twisted up. It could have been good, but you made it bad. And so now he's tasked us to do the same thing. To walk with his spirit to put right what's been twisted towards wrong. Even if the wrong things are the church itself sometimes. So what does that mean practically? It means that we have hard work to do in our individual lives, and in our collective community lives. Because so much of this world is good things twisted away from where they intended to be. We can see it all over the place. Sex is good. It's a gift from God, right? And in our world has been twisted into something very different than what it was intended to be. And I want to be very clear here. I'm not talking about the LGBT community right now. When was the last time in church you had a good conversation about a healthy sex life in general? We're all kind of awkward right now, aren't we? Because we don't, do we? If we've been tasked with untwisting things that have been twisted up, we better start talking about that, right? Taking pride in what we've accomplished is good. We should do good work. But but that pride in so many ways gets twisted into arrogance, doesn't it? With instead of being just taking pride in doing good things with the, with the tools and the, uh, the resources that God has given us, we make it about us. Look at me. Look at the awesome things I've done. Look how great I am. Which, by the way, if you want to see the sin in the Bible that God speaks the harshest against, it's pride. It is the only sin in the entirety of Scripture that God says, I will actively work against. He says, I oppose the proud.
We could go on and on. Taking care of ourselves and our families financially is good. It's a good, appropriate thing. But I'm confident that we've all wrestled with the line between prudence and stewardship and greed, haven't we? Justice is good, restorative justice. But the desire, to justice can, the desire for justice, justice can easily be twisted towards vengeance or revenge, can't it? Righteous anger can easily become rage. Healthy discipline can, come, can become legalism, and we can go on and on and on and on and on. See, so often we begin doing things because they actually are good for us. And then go too far and have it be twisted away from where we were supposed to be. So what do we do with that? I think it's what James is talking about at the beginning of his book. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That we're in these spaces in which we run into things that are twisted, and it gives us an opportunity to untwist them. You see, this is the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And he then goes on to say, and it's not going to be easy. If there's any of you lack wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all, and it will be given. The invitation of James is to take on these twisted things head on and work to untwist them using the wisdom of God's Spirit. Friends, we have an opportunity to work to undo the wrongs of this world. But it's not easy. Jesus challenges the religious system here because he knows how powerful it could be if they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. If we, if we thoughtfully are discerning about the task that we've been given to work to right the wrongs of this world, it's an unstoppable force that literally changes it. But it requires us to be humble and take a look at the practices we're doing and the motivations in which we're doing them. The difference between justice and vengeance is justice looks to seek things right and vengeance looks to satisfy myself. The dis difference between stewardship and greed is the same. When we, when, we, when we focus inward, we mess everything up, but when we look outward, we can change everything. In just a few minutes, we're actually going we're gonna, to we're, we're, we're gonna celebrate the practice of baptism. One of the commitments that we're going to ask you to all make is to help Brittany and Tyler do that for Ledger. As you're making that commitment, I, I pray that you, you take it seriously in the way that Jesus has asked us to. Because he comes into a world filled with twisted things, and he's get, we need to collectively work together to help Brittany and Tyler and Ledger figure out what that looks like. But we do it with God's Spirit. Baptism is a beautiful symbol to come at the end of a hard message like this. Because it's convicting, because if we really start to look inward, we realize that many of us have failed at this in this twisting, untwisting in a lot of different ways. But the waters of baptism are something we get to look at because they say they, they're a, a symbol and an example to us. First, in this case, that God loves us even if we're messing up or we don't even know who he is. And second, water is a symbol that says even when you mess up, you can be washed clean. The beauty of the gospel message 
is that God says you have hard work and you're not going to do it well all the time. And every single time you remember your baptism, you get to start again. It's a beautiful symbol of being cleansed and restored over and over and over again. Here's what Jesus says about baptism. He came to his disciples. He said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And so today, we have the opportunity to baptize Ledger Michael Jose. We baptize our children in response to Jesus' command, recognizing that they belong to the body of Christ, that we work with them to try to undo the broken things of this world. Early on in the church, we see Paul baptizing whole households, signifying that God's promise of love is extended to all people, whether they're aware of God's love or not. Ledger doesn't know what's going to happen today. He doesn't understand it. But today we continue to practice baptizing children in the household of believing parents within the church body. Because today, Ledger joins a worldwide community of faith, an even bigger family, which began when God established a covenant relationship with Abraham and his family. When God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be your God, to be the God of, to you and to your offspring. Peter speaks the same thing at Pentecost. This promise is for you and for your children, those who are near and far away. Everyone who calls on our, everyone who calls, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. So when we celebrate baptism, we realize a few things. First, it's a practice that assures us of God's love, which is not dependent on us, which we need after looking at a passage like today. We love because God first loved us. Second, it signifies a promise that God makes to Ledger, to draw him close to himself throughout his life through the Holy Spirit. This happens through God forgiving our sins and, ad and adopting us into the body of Christ, which is the church, and sending us his Holy Spirit to renew and cleanse us and one day resurrect us to eternal life. Third, it signifies a promise that Brittany and Tyler are going to make to Ledger, to raise him to know God, to, to teach him how to untwist the things of this world through the power of the Holy Spirit. And finally, like we've already mentioned, it's a promise that you all make to help them do that, to walk with them to, in raising Ledger to love and serve God, to make this world look a little bit more like heaven than hell. core elements of baptism are this. God makes a promise to love us, which empowers us then to promise to love him in return. All while, drawing, all while God is drawing near us, all of us closer to himself so that we can be saved and then out of that space, care for each other. Infant baptism is like a marriage proposal after which we're engaged to Christ. And there's an expectation that one day Ledger will make the choice for himself that he'll declare the promises of his baptism to be accepted by him. And so we use water as a symbol. Because like we've already mentioned, water cleanses, it purifies, it refreshes, it sustains. And Jesus calls himself the living water. Just a few seconds, I'm going to invite them to come, or Tyler and Brittany to come forward with Ledger, but let's pray first. 
Father God, we just want to come before you recognizing that we live in a broken world and often a space in which we often take the focus away from where it ought to be with our eyes focused on you, that then you redirect them towards love for each other. So often we take our eyes off of that and turn them inward to ourselves. God, may we as a community repent from that, turn from that, because we know that that's a destructive practice, that we see so much discord that comes when we become inwardly focused and selfish. May our eyes turn back to you. God, as we baptize Ledger in just a few minutes here, we thank you for your beautiful promises that you make to him, that as he comes into this world, you say, I love you before you even know who I am. That you send your spirit to him so that he can experience the fullness of life that can come when we untwist the, bat, the things that are twisted. God, we pray for Tyler and Brittany as they raise Ledger. Give them wisdom, the wisdom that we, we see in James to, to teach him what it means uh, to live like you've asked him to. Give us wisdom as the community of believers to help them in that process, that we can all go on this journey together, wrestling through the difficult things of this world. May this moment be a moment that they remember as a family, as a moment in which they experience your love in a deep and profound way. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.